All right, thank you, choir. Got a little soul this morning. Love it. Uh, good morning. Uh, we didn't get a chance to do this, but let's just do it right now. Just turn to somebody, like three people next to you. You don't have to stand up. Just turn to someone and say, hey, welcome. It is so good to see you this morning. Yeah, we welcome you again, and for longtime members, family, and for visitors, and for special guests out of town for this day, uh, it is good to worship you, with you, worship God with you, and we're not worshiping you, and uh, we're wrapping up a, few, a series, uh, the first third of it, and today we're going to touch upon a question that everyone uh, probably wrestles with, and it's this question of what happens after we die? And I'm not going to go fully into it theologically, but this text gives us a lot of insight of this question that we ask, what happens really after we die? And so I want to go back a few verses from what we read to Luke 16, verse 13 and 15 to give context of this text. We'd heard about Lazarus and this rich man, and some of you were reading and maybe felt a little bit uncomfortable. This is one of those texts where you say, oh, this... I don't know what's going on here, or this is this uncomfortable. But the context of it starts a few verses before, and let me read for you verse 13 and 15, right before verse 19. That, no one can serve two masters, Jesus speaking here. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money... And this is where we go, ooh, can you say ooh? That's fun. Heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. You see, the context begins with Jesus saying, you can't love God and love money at the same time. It's impossible. You're going to either hate one or love the other, but you can't love both. And he's saying this because the Pharisees, who Luke writes, they loved money, heard all this and were staring at Jesus. During Jesus' time, it's helpful to know that the Jews had this weird belief. If you were wealthy, you were wealthy because God blessed you and you were a good person. In other words, if you were poor, that means you probably deserve it. You must be a wretched person. We're wealthy, that's because we're good. You're poor because that's where you're bad. And they believed that. So the Pharisees had a lot of money, so guess what they did? They wore purple robes and strutted around town and let everyone know, we're that good. And Jesus is saying, in that context, I'm going to tell you something. Your wealth has zero correlation to your spiritual health. And he shares this message. So he says to them, and this is where Jesus, he's holy and righteous and he's amazing, but he's not nice. Listen to what Jesus says to Pharisees. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. In other words, you say whatever you can to look good in front of other people. But God knows your heart. No matter what you can prove, no matter what you can convince, no matter how you can make others believe about you, you, you got to understand this. God knows your heart. 
What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. That's what Jesus says. So in this context, he's saying the kingdom of God is not just for the rich and good. It's for, can we say amen after this? It's for all people. Amen? The poor people can actually obtain the kingdom of God. Women can actually obtain the kingdom of God in this Palestinian time where women were inferior. Gentiles could obtain the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ the Savior. Material wealth has nothing to do with spiritual health. So he goes into a little bit of that and goes into this story. Now, no one knows if it's a parable because in this story, Jesus does something for the first time he never did at parables. He actually uses a proper name. The man's name was Lazarus. He never used proper name in any parables. So a lot of people assume this is not a parable. This is actually a true story of two different people. And so he goes on. So this, I want to look at these two main characters, and would you journey with me? This rich man and Lazarus, completely different lives. The rich man lived, his clothing was rich linen and purple, the sign of nobility, purple, beauty, and majesty. They had food. This rich man not just had food, but the actual description is he had a banquet every day for every meal. Go to hometown buffet, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. No, forget hometown buffet. Go to Four Seasons in Dana Point, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He's living posh. He has so much food, he's just feasting and gorging. That's how much money he has. And he lives in this palace with servants. Now, there's contrast that with Lazarus. Verse 20, at that rich man's gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. By the way, I have a huge canker sore. That's TMI, I know. But I'm dying here. I can't drink orange juice, and we had tacos this weekend, and it was killing me. And I'm picturing that little inconvenience all over your body. Open ulcers. Unsanitary clothing. Sitting at the gate of this rich man. Pus oozing out. And these dogs come. And the way I first read this years ago was the dogs were the only ones giving sympathy. <laughs> I love you. Like, but exploring this text a little bit more, the dogs were actually these street raggedy dogs that were harassing and bothering this Lazarus man. They weren't helping him. And he just sat there because he had no energy, no food, no money. And so the story goes on. Jesus says, Soon the Lazarus died and went up to Abraham. And the rich man died and was buried. Even to the very end, what do you notice there? How, were they, how was their death treated? Lazarus, he just died. And they just took his body and dumped it. The rich man had a burial. Even to the very end, on this side of life, this rich man had it good. Lazarus, buddy, this beggar kicked out so the beggar died and the angels carried him to abraham's side now here's jesus point so we're all we're all together to that point and here's jesus's left hook where where was the rich man in verse 23 verse 23 the second the two words right after that in hades where he was in torment 
He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, this must have made the listeners shocked. This rich man who had it all was not in heaven? So Hades is a theological term, and this is what theologians distinguish Hades. It's the holding place where dead people go before their final judgment to true hell, Gehenna, which is the permanent place. Hades is a temporary, it's not purgatory. We don't believe in that. Hades is a holding place before the final judgment of Jesus Christ upon all the living and the dead. And this guy is locked in and he cannot escape. But here's the scary part. He's in torment. That he just says, I just want a drop of water. Not only is that scary, but what's frightening about this is he could see the other side. And he could have conversation. Abraham, can you send Lazarus, Father Abraham, to get a drop of water? And Abraham says, we have a chasm. We, you've had your life, but even if we wanted to, we can't cross over to there. You can't cross over to here. And Abraham is using this plural form, us and you, us and you. We've been separated. And in contrast, we have Lazarus. Lazarus is in, the Greek word is kopos, which is this bosom of Abraham, like between the arms hold, held together. Finally, he's being comforted, and he is in heaven, and he is in a blissful state. He, too, will be judged, but he will be taken up together. And so this is what Jesus is saying. You know what? Your material, your physical outer appearance, you could say whatever you want, but God looks at the heart, and there will be a judgment. And this rich man had it all, but he lost it all. This Lazarus, who had nothing, gained everything. And so this concept of hell, by the way, um, I want to share about this because we don't talk about this enough. Um, And I don't enjoy talking about hell. I just want to teach this, though, because in the Bible, the person that talks about hell the most, do you know who it was? Who do you think talked about hell the most? Apostle Paul? Peter? Jesus Christ? All the Gospels, the word hell was used by Jesus Christ 11 times. Um, in America, November, as of November 2015, they asked people, how many of you believe in hell? 58% of Americans believe in hell, more than half, majority. How many of you believe in heaven? 72%. So we live in a country where it's kind of cultural Christianity, but we believe in heaven and hell. And, but what matters most is what Jesus believed. For Jesus, it was not a... Maybe, I don't know, who knows? We're all good. No, this is what Jesus says. Let me share just two verses. Matthew 5, 30. Jesus says to us, And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Again, not literally, so don't don't be chopping yourselves off after church. He's saying, sin is so ferocious, cut it off. Because this is what Jesus says. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body body to go into hell he's saying hell is so real and i my heart for you is not for you to go there that if you cannot stop sitting take an extreme measure because you don't want to go there matthew 10 28 do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body 
in hell. Matthew 10, 28. I think about the Ethiopians that were beheaded a few years ago, a year ago, 21 of them. Christian Ethiopians who would not denounce Christ and ISIS took them on the beach and beheaded them. And this is the story. The Christian pastors went to the families of, in Ethiopia and they were mourning and crying and weeping. And one of the pastors says to the mother of one of the, kid, the men who died, we're so sorry for your grief. And she says, Pastor, you don't understand. I'm not grieving because I'm sad. I'm grieving that my son was considered worthy enough to die for the name of Jesus Christ and that he is with him in paradise. There's a woman who doesn't get scared about what people can do to the body, but she believes, she reveres, and she trusts in the one who can throw and save souls from hell to everlasting life. And that's where she knew her, her son is. John Calvin, one of our forefathers of Protestant, says this, Many persons have entered into indigenous, ingenious debates about the eternal fire by which the wicked will be tormented after judgment. But we may conclude from many passages of Scripture that it is a metaphorical expression. So he's saying it might be a metaphor, just descriptive about hell. Let us lay aside the speculations by which foolish men weary themselves to no purpose and satisfy ourselves with believing that these forms of speech denote. In other words, let's stop debating about what it's really like, fighting over what it's going to be. We don't know. That's what he's saying. In a manner suited to our feeble capacity, a dreadful torment which no man can now comprehend and no language can express. That last part, you know what he's saying? It is no good to try to detail what hell is going to be like. It's probably a metaphor. But then he says this, but those metaphors are probably close to being as dreadful in reality as they really are. That's John Calvin's view. We may not say, some people, there's three beliefs circulating. Some people believe and these are Bible-believing people, just as a FYI. Like one group thinks that once we die, and we go to, if they go to hell, they don't suffer, but they're worshiping a God who they can't ever connect with. That's some common view these days. Another view called annihilationism is this. People are in Hades, and then when Jesus judges them, they will be finally permanently destroyed and don't exist anymore. Third is the tradition of you, they're in Gehenna and they're eternally tormented in fire. Now, all three of those, I wouldn't want to wish upon anyone. But what John Calvin is saying is on point. Regardless of what the details are, here's a reality. It's a real place to Jesus. And Jesus wants everything to be done so that we don't go there to be saved. And so we have Lazarus who is in the arms of Abraham. So here's a question that you and I are asking that we need to ask. How did they end up there? What did the Lazarus do to get into arms of Abraham? And why did the rich man go? So the first thing you would think is he was rich. That's why he's in hell, which would make everybody in this room uncomfortable because, you know, in the world standards, guess who's rich? Raise your hand. If, if you have a car and you drove here and you have clothes that are not 20 years old, you work at Starbucks, you're in the top five percentile of the whole world if you work at Starbucks. That's according to economics statistics. We live in a pretty wealthy thing. 
thank goodness, there was more to it than just the fact that he was rich and Lazarus was poor. And so Lazarus went to heaven and then rich man went to Hades. So let's look at this. Notice about the rich man, he was religious. He went to Sunday school probably. He went to little boy, Jewish boy school. He knew Abraham. He had a religious background. And it's so easy to assume that he was a good person. But if you look at this text, rich man had something that Jesus is showing clearly. He was the epitome of self-centeredness. You know, he let Lazarus stay in his doorsteps, suffering, and he just walked around him and said, do you mind? Your pus is dripping on my floor. Just can you keep it to yourself? I mean, he did nothing to consider this man. He let him stay, but completely lived in banquet for himself. He was in complete oblivion to the world around him, even to God, and it was about him. So even after death, did you see what the rich man did? He sees Lazarus, and he says to Father Abraham, I'm dying here, literally. Send that boy Lazarus and give him a drop of water for me. What is he doing? Even after death, the Lazarus, the beggar, is still his condescended, inferior human being. It's about him. And then he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers because they're also self-centered snobs. <laughs> they don't know any better. Warn them. And he's still commanding Lazarus. The epitome of this rich man was a classic case of what sin is. It is that I am God. I am the center of my universe. I am my own savior. I am my own king. I can do whatever I want. This is about me. And so the rich man never reached out to anything else. See, Jesus is not only disproving that false belief that rich people are good. He's saying there is going to be a judgment. Throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, there is going to be a judgment for us after death. Death is not just a passing over and we all go to heaven together. In fact, actually, actually a progressive theologian says this. We've fallen into this modern heresy that we're all basically pretty good people who don't need comeuppance. In other words, like this punishment for sin. If we really thought more about our sin, if we really thought about people starving around the world while we're living in the midst of plenty, we'd worry more about God's grace to forgive us. Just in short, this is what 21st century we believe in America. I am not perfect, but I'm not bad. I'm a good person. So when people die, we say, can't wait to see him in heaven. Why? Because he was a good person. And what Jesus is saying here is this. Your good and your bad is defined by God's holiness. It is not defined by your view of yourself. That's what the Pharisees did. So conversely, why was Lazarus in heaven? Was it because he was poor? No. He's with Father Abraham, not because he's poor, but there's something about him. And it, by the way, I love how Jesus never says, but Lazarus was a good man. I love Jesus didn't say that, right? It's so easy to say that. If you're good, you go to heaven. By the way, most uh, millennials believe that you go to heaven if you're good. Christians, they surveyed a thousand Christian millennials, Christians, and said, what makes you go to heaven? And they said, you got to be good. What? <laughs> so what is good enough? And so Lazarus was not good, 
but there's a clue to his name. Do you, do you know what the name Lazarus means? It's so cool. His name means God is my help. Can you say that? God is my help. His very name defines that he has no help of his own. God is his help. And so physically poor, spiritually poor, misery and rock bottom, he had no choice, no help, but he put his trust in God. By the way, poor people could be self-centered too. For this poor man, that brokenness allowed him to go to God. Uh, Preacher Tony Evans says this, and this is a good news for us. I think this is a good word. Sometimes God lets you hit rock bottom so that you will discover that he is the rock at the bottom. Amen? Sometimes God lets you and I hit rock bottom so that we can see that he is the rock at the bottom because when we don't see that, we think we're our own rocks. Lazarus learned to trust not in his own self, but he reached out for a savior. Jesus Christ says in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know how you get heaven? When you realize you have nothing worth receiving it. When you're poor in spirit, when you say, Jesus, I have nothing to trust on my own. I am a wretched man. I'm a wretched woman. You are my hope. And in that life of misery, Lazarus lashed onto God as Savior. And God claimed him. God allows and uses suffering and pain to turn us back to him. Lazarus was not self-sufficient, but he was humble. So what is Jesus teaching us? And let me just kind of bring this down. First, he's teaching us just on a more superficial level, and we'll get deeper. Jesus cares that the church ministers to the poor and the suffering. Amen? We are a hospital, not a museum. You've heard that. We are not a cruise ship. We're a battleship. Thank you for one person. I preached on that like six months ago. Christians, we're not a group of people who have it religiously together. We're a people of grace, shown God's mercy, identified in Jesus Christ, supernaturally empowered to be a blessing to the world around us, whether it's angel tree, whether it's our neighbors, whether it's people around us. And our focus can't be on ourselves. What am I getting out of church? It ain't about you. I can't go to Sunday church Sunday today because I get nothing out of it. It ain't about that. It's about let's rally together, let's pray together, and let's live out the identity that God has called us to do to reach out to the suffering. One person at a time. One family at a time. Second, Jesus is saying, there's a warning I want you to hear. Somebody did rise from the dead, and he's telling us it's real. Are you prepared? We are all sinners in need of a Savior. Here's the good news. If you're thinking, I'm not rich, I'm poor, good news for you. If you're saying, I'm rich and I'm good, good news for you. Rich or poor, male, female, Gentile or Jew, here's the bad news and good news. We all need Jesus Christ as Savior. That's what he's saying. You know, I I wrote this, like, I wonder, we think like this, like, that guy's really bad. He needs Jesus. And, you know, the the funny thing about that, or the dangerous thing about that is this. We're we're measuring their need for Savior based on our measure of morality. Because I'm not that bad. 
But then when Jesus says in, Matthew, in, John, in Luke, just a few verses, God looks at your what? Heart. Are you proud of everything in your heart? Are you pure and perfect in your heart? If you're a human being, the only person that could say, yes, I am, is he walked 2,000 years ago. And so Jesus is saying, Mother Teresa, Pol Pot to Stalin, to Pastor Jason, we all need a Savior. And he's saying, the warning is, are you ready? So he's calling the world, and this is the final thought. I'm calling you. Jesus is calling the church to go out. He's calling the world to hear this. Will you humble yourself and receive the grace of faith through good news of Jesus Christ? Will you humble yourself? You see, maybe that's a better question for us to ask ourselves. It's not how long have you been going to church, but maybe a better question is how is your life in humility? How is your life depending on Jesus Christ? You know, a lot of us, we think speaking of hell is so heavy, it's scary. I don't want to talk about it. But the reality is Jesus is saying, this is why. When you see how scary it is, Palm Sunday makes sense. Good Friday makes sense. The cross makes sense. And the resurrection makes sense. Let me end with this story. Last year, I was playing baseball. Uh, my son was playing baseball. Um, and it's kind of it's funny being a pastor uh, in the world out there because the team found out that Ethan's dad was a pastor. So it happened again. This always happens to me. It's weird. Everyone's like, hey, Jason, hey, Jason. But one weekend, they must have had a party without me, and they talked about how I'm a pastor or something. Because the next week, one by one, people are coming up to me and, and confessing about their faith and backgrounds and their sins. And I'm like, you know, I appreciate that. I, I want to kind of watch my son play baseball. I'm not going to have a confessional booth. And, and so, but four dads came up to me and were like, hey, can I talk to you? I haven't been to church in a while. Is that bad? And I was like, well, let's have coffee together. I, I, we, that's a deep conversation, man. But I'm encouraging them. But one dad in particular said this. My family is trying to go back to church. And we're looking around. And, and I refer them to a good church in Garden Grove area because they're close by. And I said, what happened? He said, I stopped going to church when I was like nine. And I said, Why? He said, I went to a church, and every Sunday, they would tell me, you're going to hell. So I was like, come on! You're exaggerating. No, he said, every Sunday, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. And he said, I freaked out. Just like that. (laughs) I freaked out. And so he said, I stopped going to church. And so I said, I'm going to tell you the whole Bible in 15 seconds. And the good news. You ready? And I I think, I'm not sure what made me say it, but God gave me this. I said, the bad news is we're all sinners and we are in judgment of hell. But here's the good news. Instead of God rejoicing in you going to hell, God came down and went to hell for you, for your sins, so you don't have to. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? That's why we have to talk about hell. 
not to say, you better come to church or else, but it's you can't do anything about it. You can't fix it. You can't make it worse. It's bad. But Jesus Christ walked in on a donkey to Jerusalem, and people were waving palm branches, and he knew in five days what was expecting him was four nails, a crown of thorns, a flogging that would leave him stripped of his skin, and he would die his very last breath of asphyxiation. But then he would rise again, and three days later, and hell and sin would be defeated. Friends, I don't care where you are in your life, but we have a good news for Lazarus. If your life is broken, messy, good news. When you hit rock bottom, Jesus is the rock at the bottom. Amen? When you feel discouraged about your sin, here's the good news. Jesus paid that sin for us, and that is why we celebrate Easter. I can't tell you how much love I have for Jesus when I consider hell, not ignore it. And so what Jesus is saying is, this is eternity. You have the choice. Your life right now is going to indicate where you live forever. Where will you stand? My prayers for you and this world is, Jesus, call us to yourself. We need you. We trust you. We love you. May we be a church that proclaims that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, in this room, if you would impress upon the hearts of those who may be living in between rich man and Lazarus or as rich man or even as Lazarus, wherever they may be, that you would meet them where they are and you would touch them, you would make them hear your voice. You would make them see that you're a God, as Second Peter 3 says, who doesn't delight that we get destroyed, but you desire for us to be saved, and you're patient with us. And so, Lord, we thank you for this incredible King Jesus. That this is more than religion, but this is our life. This is what the church has been called into. Not for what we can get out of it, but Lord, how we can proclaim this truth to a world that needs to see it, hear it, and be transformed by it. Thank you, Lord, for your candidness. Thank you for taking our sins. May we be found in you, and may our identity be fixed in you, Jesus, alone. We pray these things. In your precious name, amen.